that might make more sense than some things I say today. So. I thank the Lord. Did somebody say amen? Was that you, Mark? Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Mike, uh, I just want to encourage you, uh, the songs that you and Laura uh, chose today, I was struck by it because I don't think I told you the passage I was preaching from, but the, uh, the themes of that, uh, of the song, the, the dancing in the darkness and uh, he holds the future and he is the king, remarkable themes as we go to God's word today. Uh, we are living in turbulent times and I'm going to have us go to a passage of scripture today where the Lord was speaking to his people about holding on to him and how they were going to walk through turbulent times as they were looking forward to Christ coming, looking forward to the Messiah. But still, the Lord Jesus was the one working behind the scenes, and he was in his sovereign role guiding and directing their lives. And he stirs uh, through the prophet Isaiah a song that he wants them to learn for those days. And I'll say more about that in a moment, but um, uh, let's ask again the Lord's help because uh, the passage can be a challenge and uh, we need the Holy Spirit's help to think through uh, moving from a prophet 700 years before Christ into where we walk with Christ today. So let's ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear folks. Uh, those that know you, Lord, are precious to you. You know them by name as we sang, and you care for them. Others, Lord, you're drawing to Christ, and we ask, Lord, that the word would be so powerful today, used by your spirit to open unbelieving hearts to turn to Jesus. All of us, Lord, here, desperately ask that you would help me. I, I am a clay pot, uh, wonder of wonders, that a redeemed rebel and sinner, an enemy of God, should open up your word now and declare the grace of Christ. So help me, Lord. Give me your spirit's help. Keep my mind focused and in line. Help us move through your word faithfully. And we ask it, our Lord, for the glory of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 26. I hope you have your Bibles at Adirondack Bible Chapel. We preach from the Bible. So you don't come and listen. You engage with the Word. Not, I, you don't come and listen alone, but you engage with the Word in front of you. And uh, probably bring the Bible you commonly use all week long because it becomes more and more familiar to you as you listen to sermons and you look at the Bible you're using all week long. We provide them uh, in the chairs there for people that maybe don't have a Bible or on those Sundays where you rush out of the house and forget one. But you should be regularly bringing God's Word, opening it up, listening to what the Word says. Isaiah chapter 26, as you look in your Bible, depending on what translation you have, it probably you can tell looking at it that it is set up uh, in a poetic way which is also going to be a little bit of a challenge because of the images and the pictures that unfold there. Certainly, I'm not going to try to explain them all. I want to hit some high points on it. But a little more background to understand this. This is 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. What is remarkable is Isaiah was stirred by the Spirit, called by, to be a prophet, and he is stirred to write the prophecy 
of what Israel and Judah are going to encounter a hundred years later. To put it another way, he is being stirred to write for the great-grandchildren of the people of his, who first listened to him. Uh, maybe to put it another way, it would be someone uncovering now uh, an editorial or an opinion piece written in uh, 1921 about what it would be like going through a pandemic and how it would affect the churches and how would it affect the leaders of nations. We would be be astounded to see it. But this is God's power as he writes through Isaiah. The word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not merely human authorship. God used human authors and moved them by his spirit. So we are 700 years before Jesus is is born in Bethlehem. But the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, by the ministry of the Spirit, is writing through Isaiah. And Isaiah is telling the people ahead of time, here's what's going to happen to the nation. Because the nation was on a downward slide into unbelief. And Isaiah is saying, you are going to go through turbulent times. And he says, and here is a song you're going to need. Here is a a psalm, a poem you're going to have to have in your hearts to go through those days. And what's interesting is the true believers in Israel would hold on to those prophecies. They would teach them to their children, their children's children, their grandchildren, The true believers were always passing down the word. We looked at the Operation Christmas Child video. What does it remind us of? So many different lessons, but one of of the lessons is, as it says in Psalm 22, one generation will declare your praises to the next generation. The Lord's church will never fail. That's why those of us that are in the later stages of life, rounding third base, when we see boys and girls and we see teenagers coming to faith in Christ, walking with the Savior, Why it gives us great joy. We see the faithfulness of God at work. So the true believers are handing down this prophecy from Isaiah. And they're handing it down generation to generation. And the Lord is showing his people at this point in this prophecy, this is a song you're going to need in your heart for the turbulent days you're going to go through. They're going to see the Assyrian Empire sweep in and cause war and devastation and deprivation and some people taken off into captivity. And that would be bad enough, it would seem, but then the Assyrian Empire is conquered by the Babylonian Empire. They sweep in and they take off, take the southern part of Israel called Judah, takes them off into captivity. And the true believers in the Lord are experiencing these times, just like the unbelieving Jews were experiencing it. The true believers were still experiencing it. That's why when we come to the book of Daniel, we see Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them, unfortunately, more by the pagan names that the king gave to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to reflect his paganism. Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, they stand firm with the Lord. They went into captivity, but they were genuine believers in the Lord. Daniel, genuine believer, going off into captivity. So the Lord is preparing the people. He's moving and working. The the southern nation will also be the southern part of the nation will also be devastated. And now the Lord lays out for them 
what a song of trust they are going to need during those dark and turbulent times. And I'm going to shape it this way. I'm calling it four assurances that the Lord is teaching their hearts in the promise of a coming Redeemer. Four assurances. And I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we'll look at each section of Isaiah 26. The assurance of a city of peace. I know we live in the Adirondacks. We only go to the city to stop at Walmart and Home Depot. I understand that. Maybe go to a different restaurant. Whatever. But we're going to see how important the city theme is. A city of peace. Second assurance, a good path. Third assurance, a perfect ruler. And fourth assurance, living home hope. Let's look at verses 1 to 6. And 1 to 6 somewhat sets the stage for the remaining verses, so I'm going to take a little more time on that, so don't be nervous, please. I know emotionally what can go on in our minds and such is like, well, we're going to be here till 2. Um, I give you my commitment. We'll be out before 2. So we'll go to Isaiah 26. Let's look at verses 1 to 6. In that day... In other words, this day of judgment coming and darkness overrunning the land. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Bulwarks were the fortification sections. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust, The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. He's describing two realities here. Jerusalem, but in a different way. That's that first city he's talking about. Jerusalem was the city on earth to remind the people that there was a heavenly city that they had citizenship in. Jerusalem was simply a picture of that. Then he talks about another lofty city. We have to remember back in those days, these empires were built around what were called city-states. So you had Nineveh, and of course Jonah was called to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go, that evil city-state known for its treachery and its evil. The Lord says, I am a God of grace, you are to go. And uh, Babylon was one of those major city-states. And so he is saying, here is my city known by my name, Jerusalem. And here are these lofty, arrogant, abusive, oppressive centers of money and power and military might ransacking the world and overrunning my people. That's the contrast. It's all through human history. I mean, we have it in our day and age. Uh, You can easily look up where the money centers are, the power centers, the influence centers, the military centers. And they are up against 
the weak people of the world and up against the Lord's people. Psalm 2 talks about that. The world rulers saying, why don't we cast off these fetters, these chains that Christians are always trying to put on us. And the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. And he says, my day of judgment is coming. So he's painting a picture here, but let's look at some of the statements he makes. And why I say it's a heavenly city, and that theme is picked up in the New Testament. You and I, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're citizens of a heavenly city. Look how he words it here. Look at verse 1. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, you can read about ancient cities, and they would talk about the stonework and the timbers, and the, some of the walls were so wide, three chariots could, could travel abreast of each other down the top of the wall. And God says, my city has as its walls and fortifications salvation. Look what he says here, open the gates. Now, what would happen... Usually, what would happen when an invading empire would come? What would the city do with its gates? Close them. This is an amazing picture. This is why we know it's a heavenly city he's describing. The Lord says, I'm opening the gates. I'm opening my gates to any who want to turn to me for salvation. The gates are open. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, I think just about every translation uses the phrase perfect peace. How many of you know what the greeting is that you would hear among Jewish people when they greet one another? What do they say? Ah, you're fluent in Hebrew. Great. That's is excellent. Okay. Shalom. Literally, this reads, you will keep him in shalom, shalom. You will keep him in shalom, shalom. Shalom is the idea that all of life is affected by the peace from God. All of life is connected with the Lord. And he's saying, you come in through the gates of my heavenly city and I will begin bringing peace into your life, a deep peace, a peace within peace. I will set your soul at peace, peace with God, peace from God, as we look to the one who forgives sinners by his grace. He says, I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And it's very interesting, the word stayed there, it's the same word they would, it's a, it's a war word in some ways. It means to lay siege. When an invading army would surround a city, they stayed. They basically told the warriors on the wall, we're not going anywhere. And he says, the believer in the Lord who says to the Lord, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I'm holding on to you. That wonderful story in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with a man at night, and we know it's the angel of the Lord wrestling with Jacob. It's not like he couldn't beat Jacob. What he had to do was break Jacob until finally he's saying to Jacob, let go of me. 
He's giving Jacob the opportunity to back out of the wrestling match. And what does Jacob says? What does Jacob say to him? I will not go unless you bless me. That's the word here. Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I'm holding on to you. I trust you. I trust you forever. You're the everlasting rock. And then he shows the tension of being a citizen of this heavenly city with the lofty power centers of the world, with all their arrogance and abuse of power. And the Lord says, I will lay them low. And in fact, the Lord says, in that day when I come and my people will come with me, we will trample my enemies, the Lord says. You read in Revelation, that's what the Lord describes. This is why when we look at those who don't know Christ and they are enemies of the Lord, we love our enemies because they do not understand what lies ahead for them. They do not understand the judgment of God is coming. The sentence of hell is coming. They do not understand that. They do not see it. I remember one place where I worked one time, and it was a small business, and I was sharing the gospel with a couple of workers, and and they just said, oh, we're not too worried about that. We'll just all be together in the big dance in hell. That's what they said. There's no dance in hell. There's the darkest darkness. No hope. And also the blazing, condemning fiery holiness of God staring down on them. I'm pleading with you today, if you do not know Christ, flee from the wrath to come and come to the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. He is saying that we have a city of peace. Now, we can say, well, that's nice. I have this heavenly city. How does that, how does that connect, though, with where I live down here? Well, a few ideas here. First of all, the city is a picture of community, caring for one another. That's why in the book Nehemiah, it's not just about building those walls. It was rebuilding the community of the people together. We don't come and just take in a sermon. I got my sermon for this week. No, this is community. Those of you that get here just in time to start the service or run out the door just after, you miss something that goes on for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes beforehand and after. Where believers are talking with one another, listening to each other, finding out their needs, offering to help one another. There's a whole lot of community life that goes on. There's something else about the city. This, this, is, this is the place where we bring peace and shalom to one another. I've been reading some articles and listening to some pastors. The Lord has used COVID as a tool to expose to many Bible preaching churches how shallow our shalom can be. And it's over masks and vaccines and believers starting to be at war with each other, like James says, where are these wars coming up between you? And we might think, well, the early church didn't have to deal 
with this kind of stuff like we do. Actually, the early church did. It wasn't masks and vaccines. It was what Paul wrote, he called disputable matters, or meaning that there was, there was a difference of opinion. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, the first half of Romans 15. Here were some of the issues. Should Christians eat the meat from the marketplace? Some Christians had very strong opinions. No, some of that meat's been offered in idol temples. We don't know which meat it was, so we should eat no meat. Others felt very strongly, no, the meat is provided by our Heavenly Father. We can enjoy the meat. And they had differing opinions on that. So strong were the opinions that Paul had to write about it. Some said, we've seen enough drunkenness. We should drink no wine at all. Others said, we, can, we are free to drink wine as long as it's not in excess. Some said, we should set aside a day as the Sabbath day and observe that and be strict. Others said, no, every day we can use to honor the Lord. And these were strong debates of opinion. So you know what Paul said? He says, I'll tell you how you, you can read it yourself. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, first half of Romans 15. Paul said, here's what you do. He said, the kingdom of God is not what you eat or drink or what day you worship. He says, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is peace and righteousness. He says, you speak and show peace to each other. He said, you respect each, other, each other's conscience. He said that you be convinced in your own mind where you want to stand on that because of your walk with Christ and you don't push hard against somebody else's conscience because it's in their conscience they're seeking to honor their Lord. They stand or fall before their Lord. Don't you push against their conscience on this. Isn't that interesting? Americans, we love our opinions. There was a Canadian TV show, and what they would do is they would come south into the United States. This is way pre-COVID. Because the, the joke, we have a lot of Canadian friends. The joke among Canadians is Americans have opinions on everything, even if they, even if they don't know what they're talking about. And I remember a reporter coming down and asking uh, from Canada and saying, you know, they've discontinued, they, uh, Canada has finally outlawed rhinoceros hunting, hunting in Saskatchewan. What are your thoughts on this? Well, a lot of Americans had strong opinions about the rhinoceros hunting in Saskatchewan. In case you don't know, there are no rhinoceroses in Saskatchewan. But I'll tell you what, we as Americans, we had strong opinions about it. And it was hilarious. We are Americans. We have strong opinions. But the problem is, Paul said, when our strong opinions break our shalom, we've lost the city of peace. So what do we do? One wears a mask and one doesn't. The one who doesn't says to the one who does, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And watch over you. And the one with the mask says to the one who doesn't. May the Lord bless you. And keep you. And watch over you. 
You think the Lord's hands are tied with masks or no masks, but rather is he a loving Heavenly Father and a kind and generous good shepherd who will care for his flock and we speak the words of shalom to each other. Someone says, well, what's your church's policy? Our church's policy is shalom. We respect each other. We love each other. We speak words of blessing and peace to each other. I wish I were not guilty of violating this principle, but I have been. And the Lord Jesus says in turbulent times, we need a city of peace. Think of our church as one of the villages of the heavenly city. Somebody wrote one time, New York City is not a big city. It's 10,000 little villages. It's a good description. Think of our church as one of the villages inside the heavenly city of God. So we have a city of peace. Now he goes on, and I'll hit the highlights of these others, but that lays the foundation. If you have the ESV, you'll notice in verse 1 through verse 6, he puts it in quotes because that's the opening of the song. And then it unfolds this way, that also there is a good path. <clears throat> if you're wondering, how are we going to get through these days? How are we going to get through these days? especially when it seems like things could actually get much worse. He says here, he sets the good path out. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Who's making it level? The Lord is. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Does that sound like the U.S. or not? <clears throat> Oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Well, there's a lot of themes going on. I just want to ask a quick question, one of Greg's surveys from the pulpit. How many of you find yourself at times waking up in the middle of the night with something on your soul? Raise your hand. It's not just me. Okay. And you find yourself and something's on your heart and mind. That wayward child, that doctor test you're waiting to hear on, some financial upheaval, some future plan, whatever. And you wake up in the middle of the night and it's you and the Lord. Lord, I need your help. He says, as we look at verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Other translations put it different ways. It literally reads, you level it level. This is another time he's doubled the word to make his point. You level it level. Now, where we're walking, where we're walking, it doesn't always seem level. 
it seems like there's obstacles. It seems there's ups and downs and lefts and rights and perplexing detours. But the Lord makes an amazing statement. And remember, there's a path that's leading towards salvation. He is saying, I'm leveling at level. I am getting you there. This idea of level means straight, on course. And he's saying, this is what the Lord does. He gives us a good path. Look at verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. They're seeing the judgments fall. And he says, you have to learn this when you see God's hand of judgment start falling in the world where you live. That in the middle of that, you wait on the Lord. Lord, I'm holding on to you. I'm seeing your hand of judgment fall. You are the desire of my soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. The good path means, the le- that good level path, it means that when we see the Lord sending judgment, we can be assured he has his people on a path to get them safely home. The judgments are not condemnation of the Lord's people. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we also know when Peter wrote, he said judgment begins with the house of God. It is a refining work. As I mentioned about how churches have responded to COVID, we need some refining work. I commend you, my brothers and sisters. I'm serious on this. I've watched and watched time and again the grace of the believers to each other. But I'm telling you, it's torn other churches apart, and the Lord has to refine at times. We should not be surprised the judgments are falling around us. If you are 50 years old or younger, you don't remember a time in the United States when it was not legal to get an abortion. It wasn't that the leaders were unaware abortions were going on. The leaders would not put their stamp on it. They said, no, we know it's going on, but we are not going to support it. And then when the Supreme Court made its ruling in 1973, I think it was a 5-2 to two ruling, that was the da- beginning of the downward slide. That was like loosening the fetters. And now, if we can get rid of the baby, we can do anything we want. This, if you, if you, you don't remember the dogs those days, those of us who are older do, we remember the downward slide. And... Just doing the math, our nation, its culture, its leaders, and sadly even some probably professing believers have their hands stained with the blood of maybe 25 million aborted babies. Did we think the Lord was finally just going to say, well, let's just move on from that issue to something else? I was a young preacher, and the old preachers in those days told us young preachers, God's hand of judgment is going to fall. We should not be surprised. And I do want to say right now two very important points. Number one, I am not free 
from the root sins that lead to abortion. I've got those same sins in my flesh. Same root sins. Number two, if you in any way have been involved in something like that, you have a Redeemer Jesus who forgives sin when you know him as Savior. You're saying, but Greg, I I was involved in it and I was a believer. You have a Redeemer who forgives sin. You may carry that burden the rest of your life and your Redeemer will use it to shape your life testimony and witness for him. You have a Redeemer. You don't have a religious leader. You have a Redeemer who rebuilds. So he's saying the judgment has to fall. God says, if I let the wicked just go their path, they'd never learn righteousness. The Lord says, I've lifted my hand up. They don't see it. But he says a wonderful prayer. Lord, let them see your good for your people. I don't know. I kept thinking this one over for days. I don't know how this works. I really don't. I've got one example that might be a little bit of a hint. Some of you may have seen this. But he says, I cause unbelievers in whose hearts I'm working to recognize, wow, the Lord really does care for his people. In some way, he does that. The closest I have to an example, at least that I can remember, I met a a believer from Nigeria. He was from a Muslim background. He was now a believer in Christ. I said, how did you come to Christ? He said, as a Muslim, I did my prayers And I was going to college, and there was a Christian group that would meet, and they would meet for prayer, and they invited me to come. He says, I went to their prayer meeting. Now, as a Muslim, I did my prayers. But he said, I would sit there, and this one is praying for their grandmother who's sick. This one is praying that the funds will come in so they can continue in school. This one was praying about a broken relationship they're trying to restore. And he suddenly realized they were praying to a God who was personal, who heard their prayers. And it struck him as, this is the Lord caring for his people. That's, and there's different ways the Lord works that way. This is all part of that good path. What do we say about the remembrance? Are we remember you, Lord. The good path to us doesn't seem level. It has obstacles, it seems. It's up and down and left and right and detours. But the Lord says it is a level path when you keep in mind, I want to glorify Jesus Christ while I'm on this path. And that'll keep us straight. Very simple. Not complex. I want to glorify Jesus. Jesus Christ and remember him when I'm on this path that keeps the path straight so there's a good path through those turbulent days third there's a perfect ruler this perfect ruler and I'm worded it that way I worded it that way because for us to think in terms of what are we what are we agitated about it's our rulers (laughs) look at verses 12 through 15 Oh, Lord. Oh, and incidentally, in this passage, he says, oh, Lord, seven times. So, like, if you've had moments recently where you just said, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, you're in good company. Holy Spirit's right in there with you. Oh, Lord. 
Verse 12. Oh, Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. In other words, you're the one who... You're the one who does all this, Lord. Oh, Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades or shadows. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. This is opposite of what they could see with their eyes. Our nation is shrinking. It's surrounded. He says, and the Lord says, no, it's not. I am at work in people's hearts. I am enlarging the nation. Other lords have ruled over us, but we remember your name. We remember the perfect ruler. I was going to, I was trying to think how to word it, but I want to put it that way. He is the one perfect ruler. He is the undefeated king. He's the invincible king. He will never be defeated. He is the king who rules over all of creation. Governor Hochul cannot pour a cup of coffee without the permission of the king of kings. President Biden cannot tie his shoes without the permission of the king of kings. There is not a single rogue molecule in this entire universe. This is our king. This is why we pray for our rulers. When Governor Cuomo celebrated the passing of a partial birth abortion, in our state senate there are believers who began to really pray Lord bring him to repentance or remove him now what does their human side say Cuomo's there forever he's not there now now you're saying yeah but now our new governor she's celebrating again we pray again because our king our perfect ruler rules over the rulers and he wants to teach us to remember his name and remember who he is this is why when we pray together as a church it's so crucial it's so vital this is why it's so important we pray for our fellow believers in 60 persecuted nations where they struggle against oppressive rulers we pray for them we pray for those rulers and it's very sobering Look at verse 14. To that end, you have visited them with destruction, wiped out all the remembrance of them. Isaiah 14 paints a vivid picture when the king of Babylon dies and goes to hell. Some of you have heard me reference this before. It's very sobering. And suddenly all the kings he had conquered rise up from their moth-eaten, dusty thrones. And they say, well, look who's in hell with us. 
the mighty king of Babylon. It's a very sobering picture. I pray that Andrew Cuomo will come to Christ because it is a very scary thing when these wicked rulers die if they don't know Christ. We have a perfect ruler. We look to him. We must think that way. We must pray that way. We must speak that way. What is our hope? It's in our perfect ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he finishes up this chapter with a living hope. Peter uses the phrase a living hope, so I'm taking it from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the only time that I found in the New Testament where the term a living hope is used. And at least so far from what I understand, a living hope means it's a hope that can never die. It's a hope that never fades. It's a hope that you can never exhaust. And it's a hope to help me live every day. That's a living hope. It's a hope that can help me live every day. This chapter wraps up with a real tension. Verse 16. There it is again. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. In distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer. If I said, how many of you have had a whispered prayer? There's a whole lot of hands that are going to go up. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Now, listen to this picture. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we... Because of you, O Lord. They could could feel God's holiness and the judgments falling. And they were crying out to the Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We'll come back to that. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. He says, we are crying out to the Lord. Lord, oh, that our nation could rise again to honor you. This is the true believers praying. And we we wanted to see new people come to you, Lord. But we were like a woman. And then when we went to give birth, it was just air. Now, we've had some recent moms here. And I'm just thinking... Laura, going through nine months, you go to the delivery room, we're waiting here, waiting here, and then finally Mike calls. He goes, well, there's no baby, it was just air. You're telling me I had three months of morning sickness, six months of backache, and now it's just air? I mean, the, the picture's vivid here. This is, Paul uses this picture to say, I labored, labored to see Christ born in you, he wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter. He is saying here, the people were struggling with this tension of despair. Nothing is happening. The the wicked are just running ransack over the earth. They haven't been defeated. And then he takes us to verse 19. And I didn't read far enough here. Your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. 
and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. There is this great tension where the believers are saying, oh, that we could see that our agonies in prayer were giving birth to something. He says there's a bigger hope. There's a bigger hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about it, that those who have died, the dead in Christ, will rise first. Why? It's a twinkling of an eye. What difference does half a twinkling of an eye make? It's the Lord's way of saying, I'm giving them priority attention because they had to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Their bodies have been waiting. They've been waiting in heaven for that new body. I'm raising them up first to honor them. He's saying, I am telling you now there is a living hope. This is not what our life is all about. This is just the preamble. It's the introduction for the believer to real life with the Lord. When we see him face to face like we sang about. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you do not know him, this is the best your life will ever be. And then you'll die in your sins and be sentenced to hell for your rebellion. That's right from the word of God. It's not me being unkind. It is the truth that Jesus himself warned of. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the struggles are, this is the worst your life will ever be. Because you'll be raised up. You will see Jesus Christ face to face. And you will be swept over with love beyond description. Your sin will be gone. You will experience an ecstasy that cannot be described. And you will be safely home. That's our living hope. We live with that every day. This is not all what life is about, what we're experiencing here, and we should not think that way, speak that way, or act that way. This is temporary. The dead will rise. He says, enter your chambers, my people, verse 20. He's using a picture until the furies pass by. He's using a picture from Exodus. He told the nation of Israel, put the blood from the slain lamb on the doorpost when I pass over Egypt. In judgment, I will pass over your home in salvation. And he's using that picture. Colossians 3 says, we are hidden with Christ. We are safe inside Christ. Just like Noah and his family were safe inside the ark. We are safe in Christ. What can the world rulers do? What can they do? They cannot touch me. It's amazing the tension here. I got the recent magazine of Voice of the Martyrs. How many of you just got the recent one? Anybody? Yeah, some of you. Picture, young, beautiful woman, believer in Ethiopia, sitting in her little hut. Do you know this pretty young gal sitting in her hut in Ethiopia? She poses this horrendous danger to the armies and government of Ethiopia. Because she's a believer in Christ. It's remarkable. A teenager with a Bible in China poses this huge danger to the biggest military power on earth. 
This is the war against Christ. But the Lord says, you have a living hope. That young woman in Ethiopia, she's going to have hope day by day, no matter what the cost. We will have hope day by day, no matter what the cost is. He says, you hide yourself in the promises of Christ. You wrap Jesus around your soul. You say, Lord, take care of me and get me through. Watch over me. Because the Lord says the bigger picture is, the Lord says, I am coming out of my place to bring judgment on the earth. This is why the Great Commission is so crucial. We must start telling people, and they lament over this happening and that happening, and we just have to say graciously, lovingly, because we love them greatly, say, listen, what you're watching happening is a forewarning from the Lord that judgment is coming. You need to know Christ. Put it in your own words, but that's what we need to communicate. So the Lord had this song had these promises laid out for them. And First Peter 1 says it wasn't just for them, it's for us too. We have a city of peace. May this be a village of shalom. We have a good path. Look for how you can glorify Christ day by day. He will show you the path he's laid out. We have a perfect ruler. We are not victims of any earthly ruler Our king of kings is the one we call on. And we have a living hope. We are looking long range. And the long range look gets us through day by day. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word today. I ask for your great, rich, and wonderful grace for your people. And I do pray, my Lord, for any that have never come to Christ, that today will be the day that they turn to Christ as Savior, that they would seek me out or someone else they know knows you so they can know you. And we ask, Lord, strengthen us for the days ahead. Thank you for your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.